Hey, thanks for turning back on the Noggin Notes podcast. Why did I just say turning back on? Well, it's because a friend of mine earlier this week said, Hey, uh, I noticed you say tuning in to the podcast, and we don't tune anything when we go to podcasts. That's an old school radio term. And I said, duly noted. I will make that correction. So I picked uh, turning on. I don't know what else you would do to a podcast other than maybe pressing play. Like, well, downloading, downloading. You could download. <laughs> you could certainly download. So thank, thank you uh, for downloading our podcast, uh, turning on, tuning in, or however you may be joining us. But we appreciate the listenership. This week's interview is with two employees of Community Health Alliance, which is a community health center in northern Nevada. And we talk about how important physical well-being is to the mental uh, picture overall, but specifically how healthcare in a in an integrated setting really brings a, a great deal more uh, impact and and better outcomes than just the siloed nature of healthcare as we typically know it. So I, th- I found the conversation really in, in, involved and, and um, very interesting to me. I really love what Community Health Alliance is doing, and I think that Patrick and Afton do an excellent job of talking about what's really possible in the world of healthcare as we know it. So if you think this is going to be a dry podcast, it's not. It's actually quite good, um, and I, I think you'll probably learn something from learning how they're doing it differently at Community Health Alliance. So that all being said, I really appreciate you following, and if you have anything to say to us, uh, you can write it to z- info at zephyrwellness.org or info at nogginnotes.com. Zephyr Wellness is the company that I co-own. It's an outpatient mental health practice in northern Nevada, and you can check out more at zephyrwellness.org. Without further delay, this is our conversation with Afton and Patrick about the integration of healthcare across many different spectra. Enjoy it. Well, we're uh, talking on Noggin Notes today with uh, two people from Community Health Alliance, which is a uh, community health center in the greater northern Nevada area, specifically Reno and Sparks. And I think you guys have seven locations, six? Six. Six locations. So these two individuals are uh, Afton Newfeld and Patrick Rogers. And I will let you guys introduce yourselves because um, I only know you as uh, colleagues and uh, titles shift and so forth. But uh, I know that Patrick is at least the, the clinical end of things. He's a clinician and Afton is more the marketing end of things. But uh, Afton, introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Um, I'm Afton and I am the marketing and PR manager at Community Health Alliance, and that um, in nonprofit, you get to wear many hats, so that also includes some community outreach and general public awareness about CHA, community health centers, and all the services we have to offer. And I'm Patrick Rogers, and I'm the director of the Behavioral Health Services, and um, uh, as a part of that, I do a lot of the administrative. I do some of the stuff with Apton, doing some of the marketing um, and public education pieces, uh, and I still stay in, involved clinically with a lot of the patients at Community Health Alliance. That's cool. So uh, tell us about what Community Health Alliance is, chanevada.org, for those who might be interested, by the way. So Community Health Alliance is a community health center, also known as a federally qualified health center. So what that means is we are able to provide a lot of services to under and uninsured uh, Nevadans specifically since we are in Nevada. But there are federally qualified health centers across the United States. And we call them community health centers just so folks don't get too confused and think, oh, you know, I have to have all these specific qualifications. Really, we're there to remove barriers and access to quality health care. And so in northern Nevada, what that looks like is we have six different health centers that offer all primary 
medical, dental, integrated behavioral health care, in-house pharmacy, nutrition services, and a whole slew and variety of other um, family-oriented health services. I want to get into the philosophy behind that, but not at this juncture. We'll do it a little bit later on because that's that's a that's a big mouthful. Right now, I actually just want to pause because there's some people who listen internationally and there's some people who listen domestically that don't know what a federally qualified health center is or otherwise known in our lingo as FQHC. Tell me what that is and how one goes about doing it. Zephyr Wellness is not an FQHC. What, what's the difference? Right. So FQHCs were born out of the ACA, Affordable Care Act, expansion, trying to expand access to folks who didn't have insurance or who had insurance that didn't cover all of their services. So there's actually a specific set of requirements um, that you need to be able to meet in order to become a federally qualified health center. So Community Health Alliance actually used to be two different community health centers. Um, one was called Hawk Health Access Washoe County, and then the other one was the St. Mary's um, Redfield Campus. And that was a uh, hospital, so mm-hmm. or it still is actually. It yeah, so go anywhere. right, right, but it used to be a nonprofit, so it was the nonprofit locations throughout the community. So they actually were able to merge, and then were able to become a federally qualified health center. That means that we were able to get some specific grant funding and get specific allocations. Like um, pharmacy, our pharmacy is able to have low-cost pharmaceuticals, and that's because we're part of a 340B program. And basically what that means is by being a federally qualified health center, we have access to certain things that make the barriers um, in care a little bit lower for us to be able to provide those to those in the community who need them. How many people do you serve on an annual basis. We serve over 30,000 unduplicated patients on an annual basis. That's craziness. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, lot. <laughs> where, do, where does that rank you guys among other hospital-type places that do what you do? So we're not really, we don't really have a hospital. Um, right, there's no inpatient care. It's right, all outpatient. Right, right, exactly. So we're more of a primary care. So we are the largest uh, provider of primary care to low-income northern Nevadans. But you don't just serve low-income people. You also serve um, people who have commercial insurance, too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, over t- a little over 10% of our patient population is actually on private insurance. They just come. They like their doctor, and so they stay with their doctor. So our mission is quality, affordable, comprehensive health services for all. It doesn't mean just low-income or uninsured. It's anybody who walks in our doors is able to access services, no matter where you're coming from. So I'm going to kick over to Patrick. That was a nice segue. You probably didn't realize it, but I want to talk about the care end of things. And um, just this is transparent radio, so you were a little quiet last time. If you could lean in, that would be great. Um, talk talk about the, the, the care that's offered and, and people liking their doctors and stuff. I know you guys do an integrated thing, and you can get into that if you want. That's a that's a cool new hip phrase these days is integrated healthcare, and uh, I think this is an appropriate forum to discuss that. But lay the groundwork first about the services and how they integrate. Well, the ser- the services between really have been between the medical uh, providers and the behavioral health providers. Now, and it's not limited to just that. I we, and on the behavioral health side, we get called over to dental to help out with some uh, uh, patients over there. We often get called up to uh, in the pharmacy even, and, and to help patients assist them through the process and understanding medications um, and how to take them and whatnot with the assistance of our pharmacists. Um, but, the, but the real work comes in the, the medical component, and there's such a strong link between um, our physical self and our mental and emotional self, and that's a, uh, they're so directly related. And, and I think the example that 
I like to use is that anybody's ever had a bad cold or a flu, that's not a mental health condition. That That is an illness that you have, but you feel depressed yes. or you feel anxious. Absolutely. And you, yeah. you just, you're like, this is this sucks, and I do not like being feeling like especially this, right? if I can't get to work because of it, and then it impacts my finances, which then impacts my state of being and the domino effect. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so we know that what happens with ourselves um, medically is uh, is related as well. So, what we what we do in the behavioral health side is we're trying to address a lot of those those issues, and and we do that through uh, a process called a warm handoff, which is really kind of the core component of the integrated care. And that is um, we identi- we may pre-identify a patient that's coming in to see one of our medical providers um, and review their charts. We'll review it with the medical provider um, and to follow up with them and to get into the room and to talk to them about if they do have anxiety or they have depression or they have uncontrolled diabetes. I, I always like to say I, I never thought I'd know much about diabetes as I do now. And, yeah. it's, and it's a significant piece um, of people's health these days, unfortunately. Or it's the medical provider that through um, their version of motivational interviewing may identify some issues that are going on. Uh, that they could use our assistance in the behavioral health world. And so we do the process of a warm handoff, and they come get us, and we walk directly into the room. That's so amazing. And I know that you guys have um, – we, we haven't – Zephyr Wellness has a memorandum of understanding or an MOU with uh, Community Health Alliance to do those cross-referrals because your guys' uh, model is not a uh, long-term care for behavioral health. It's it's short-term so that you can integrate that stuff and then uh, hand off if – it to community partners, uh, of which we're really pleased to be one, uh, if they need longer-term care. How do you go about identifying and, and coordinating that stuff? I know it's all under one roof, but you have several satellite locations. Um, t- take, take me through that process, because as people are listening, and just so you know if you're in the listening audience, why are we talking to these people? Uh, <laughs> the idea is that I really revere what Community Health Alliance has done in integrating this stuff and bringing it all under one roof. Because it it's really the ideal model for healthcare, truly, uh, that you have all your providers talking to one another, uh, and you don't need releases of information and faxes sent across town and that kind of thing. So I'm curious how this all works, um, how it, how it lays out, you know, from from client who walks in the door to wherever they go next. Well, in the in, in the world of primarily in the substance abuse, and that's a, when we deal with a lot of the substance abuse issues as well. Uh, but there's a term that's called SBIRT. So it's a screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. And all of our patients uh, that come in and each one of the medical visits get a short little screen asking about um, anything from their mood and anxiety to lifestyle habits, such as are they concerned about their exercise, their sleep, their diet, and those types of things. Um, and so it starts with the screen to really be able to ask the right questions. This is everybody walks through the door. Gets everybody, everybody that walks, has an appointment, gets, gets one of those screens. Um, then when we do the warm handoff, uh, using myself in the, as an example, I'm going to come in and I'm going to address maybe some of those issues or some of the issues that the medical provider is identifying that I can help with. And that's going to be our brief intervention. And if at that point we feel like, look, let's, let's just do, here's, here's some tips for you and... Um, I'm going to suggest that you get 
my favorite is, you know, I want you to do a 30 minutes of exercise a day. Go, go for a walk for 30 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great video out called 23 and a half hours, which means you sit on your butt and don't do anything for 23 and a half hours. And that <laughs> sounds pretty dang easy, right? And you're like, I can do that. But you ask somebody to exercise for 30 minutes a day, that becomes a little bit more challenging for, right. for people. So we kind of change that perspective a little bit. Um, and so, and then typically the patients are coming back in about 90 days and say, I'm going to follow up with you then to see how we're doing. If we feel like we need to do a little bit more than just that one intervention, we're going to invite them back uh, for six to maybe 10 sessions, uh, and it may be less than that, uh, to do a little bit more kind of intensive work and really very specific. We're dealing with anxiety. We're dealing with uh, even a smoking cessation or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and we'll identify either at that initial appointment or within the first couple of ones that there's more to what's going on. I think a, a great example would be anxiety. So anxiety, as you know, could be a symptom or it can be a diagnosis. And mm-hmm. if it turns out it's more of a symptom and we say, look, we're talking about some more traumatic things that this person experienced, we're not going to take that on ourselves. We're going to refer that out to like Zephyr and folks that are able to handle a little bit more of the intensive long-term type of work. But in the meantime, if the person walked in there originally because they uh, had a, I don't know, a a cough that they couldn't get rid of. Um, this this screening tool might identify that anxiety that, that otherwise would not have gotten identified in another environment. Afton's nodding her head. <laughs> that's that's how you that's how you pitch it to people in the community. I take it then you say, hey, you know, we we have more comprehensive care than than other things. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine like healthcare being in competition with with one another. But it seems like if I had my choice, I'd rather go to the place that is going to wrap me around in all my services, potentially. Yeah, you know, what are the, one of the statistics out there is that about 70% of all medical visits don't have an organic presentation to them. If we don't ask them the right questions, we're just going to continue to throw medications at them, and we're going to, they're going to continue in this revolving door and this cycle that's just going to be we're managing symptoms and we're not managing the core root of the problem. And, and I think that's a benefit of the behavioral health in a primary care setting is that we're so used to being able to go in and, and ask the right questions and, and talk about some things that might be kind of difficult. We as behavioral health can take a little bit more time with a patient mm-hmm. than a medical person can as well. Right. Um, unfortunately, a lot of medical providers aren't real comfortable talking about suicide and self-harm, and we're very comfortable with it. Those are questions that have to be asked. So we, we really can help the medical provider dig down to the core root of some issues that are going on. What's the response? You guys are clearly successful, and I, um, I want to get into funding streams in a minute, but what, what's the response in the community to uh, asking people to do that more often, do that model more often? Like, how, why aren't more people doing it? Why, why are we not seeing the integration of behavioral health in the medical world? It's just too hard to juggle or I mean there's well there's multiple reasons uh, and if you think about it in the in a pure form of sustainability financial sustainability mm-hmm. it can be really difficult because uh, there are times that uh, some insurance carriers aren't going to pay you for multiple visits in one day so Jake if you were to come in and see me or come in to see a medical provider you so you have the medical provider visit which we're going to build the insurance company for then you're going to see me at mm-hmm. the same time they may not accept that right 
In the world of the Medicaid population, the reimbursements are difficult as well. And so we have a low revenue generation there. So the, the idea then is you have to turn up that treadmill a little bit. Um, is, as much as we really don't like doing that, we're talking about sustainability of our healthcare system and our communities. Um, and so we have to see a higher volume of patients. And so um, the idea is that people think that when you invite another clinician into the room, that it's going to slow them down. It's going to slow that treadmill down. The mm -hmm. RPMs will go down. The reality is, is we free that provider up to go on to the next patient so we can then spend the time with that patient and to really do that, right? So um, that's there's some real stigma issues around that uh, piece. And then there's just a lot of uh, people that, that this is in the medical world. This is the way that they were trained. They, were, they weren't trained to bring somebody else in. They were trained to be the smartest person in the room. Mm, okay. Yeah. I will solve your problems. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not the reality. Yeah, and I'd like to believe that's changing, at least with some of the, the medical students with whom I've spoken. Granted, a lot of them are in psychiatry, so they already have the behavioral health uh, education. But uh, it sounds like maybe some things are changing, at least to, to broaden that up and, and maybe take a one-down approach that the, the, the MD is not going to be the, the, the wise old man of, of archetype you know, to, to, have all, to possess all the answers and solutions. Um, but you bring up a great point about sustainability, that in my world, we only get paid for the, for the services we perform, and that's after we submit a claim, and then after the insurance uh, blesses that and sends it back with, with a check attached. So having somebody on standby can be really problematic if there's, if there's no work for them to do. There's always work for them to do, but I, I get the, the piece about not doubling up on the billing and that sort of thing. But I think it speaks to a larger issue about preventative care in behavioral health, which simply is not funded. And I, I think that we're probably the only piece of the medical community, if you think about dentistry, pediatrics, primary care, um, optometry, mental health is not, you don't get your twice a year, pop the hood, check everything out, make sure the belts are tight and the, and the oil's, you know, full. It's, you have to have a brokenness before you get the healing. And I think that's really unfortunate. I think there's solutions to that. Um, but how have you managed to, to use or at least leverage your, um, your philosophy, your, your formula to get this federal funding to do just that? It sounds like you're, you're, you're out in front of it. You are doing preventative care. I heard, I heard the word come out of your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It's, it's preventative care. And I think is, I'm going to try to break this down into the, into the simplest terms, and that is we Please use... Please do. I'm kind of a simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I have to do it because it's the only way that I've been able to memorize it. Um, is that we have a value-based payment program, right? And, that, and this, is, this is the direction that we uh, need healthcare to go in, and it is slowly going in this direction. Um, and that is that the reimbursement comes not so much on the service that you provided. It was the savings that you saved the healthcare system. So in the simplest of terms, if you, Jake, you were our patient, and in 2017, you went to the emergency room 10 times, we understand that there's a cost that comes along with that. If in 2018, you went five times, and you had three extra visits with us, we knew that our prevention was, was saving the system, right? That's the very simplest of terms. Mm -hmm. And there's all these things that kind of go in behind that when we're talking about data and UDS points and, and things like that. But that's the simplest terms. If we can save the healthcare system money by improving the health of our community, 
we get reimbursed for that. Why hasn't anybody woken up to that? That seems very obvious to people like you and me who do it for a living. We, we treat people. They stay out of ERs and acute care hospitals and that sort of thing. If we can just seize things early. I mean, early intervention is everything. This is, this is the, the hot buzzword for the last 10 years around education. Early intervention prevents long-term problems. But yet we're not seeing it reflected in uh, the, the reimbursement structure. I think, I think that we're heading that direction. And I think that there's several health centers around the country that are doing this very successfully. Um, it, is a, it is a ship that is turning in the right direction, but it may have lost its power steering, right? It, uh-huh. it, knows it, needs, it knows the direction it needs to go. It just needs to kind of go that. I, I, I believe that it comes with a high upfront cost at this point. When we go from a, uh, a service-based payment system to a prevention uh, value-based system, there's more of an upfront cost. And so you have to somehow start to be able to recoup some of those costs. I'm probably not the expert in that area, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, but I, that's my understanding is that the cost up front is going to be a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Well, that and, you know, there's a lot of concerns as far as, you know, we have people that do need to be seen here and now, but what does it look like? Sometimes we run into issues of people being able to think in that long term. Yes, this preventative care, it's kind of like we have a couple initiatives to have, you know, healthier kids in our community, right? Mm-hmm. And we have uh, obesity and diabetes prevention classes and healthy weight programs. But to have people, people want to see results pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you say, hey, we're going to do this program and, you know, but we're not going to solve the obesity epidemic or this mental health, you know, or the opioid crisis in a year, right? It's like, it might take 10 years, but we will see that needle moving. We've seen it proven in other communities, all these things. But really, um, it comes down to two, the the pressure is coming from funding sources on what can we see immediately versus what does preventative care look like. So as we're as we're discussing this, I'm, and we're heading to a break here in a minute, but um, I want everybody to catch their breath a little bit. But um, I'm thinking in in terms of like that that upfront cost and what you just touched on there, Afton, was the idea that you may you may pop the hood and realize the belts aren't tight. And so that results in longer-term care. And so I'm wondering if, I mean, the cynic in me is wondering if there's somebody uh, on Wall Street or some, you know, board of directors uh, beholden to the shareholders instead of the patients that's saying, well, let's not do the, the prevention thing because we may accidentally incur more ill people if we're inviting them into the system. Let's just stick with the reactive nature of our orthodoxy rather than then move forward. So, I mean, we don't need an answer. I don't want to speculate. But, uh, <laughs> that's just, I'm, I'm getting a hint there. Uh, and there's some nodding going on around the room. But Well, I would say too, though, when it comes to our funding structures, you know, we are all about preventative care and we do get a lot of support for preventative care. So yeah. I would say that, you know, there might be, I, I don't have a solid answer for you for that first question, but I do know that in our health centers, we are able to be really innovative with that preventative piece. And that's definitely something we are striving headfirst towards. And maybe that's one of the benefits of, you know, of government funding is that you, you get to direct the money where you want it rather than um, being beholden to the, the, you know, the quarter three profits that have to exceed quarter two profits in order to keep everybody happy is that you get to go, you know, uh, the old way isn't working. Our communities are dying. Let's let's shift direction here and, and you know, put the money this direction. And, you know, you require outcome measures and that kind of thing. But 
Um, we'll take a quick break and we'll uh, we'll come right back with uh, Patrick and Afton after this. This is the Noggin Notes podcast. Okay, we're back after the break and we're talking with Afton and Patrick from Community Health Alliance, uh, chanevada.org if you want to find out more. Uh, there's something that you guys do called Core Health, and I want to get into that. But first, there's the five two five two one zero program developed by Dr. Steve Shane. Who uh, Steve Steve Shane, right? You guys mm-hmm. both gave me blank looks. <laughs> I've met the guy. I'm pretty sure that's his name. Well, to be clear, I mean he he administers it. The the, the program mm-hmm. was actually developed, I think, in Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sorry, implemented here. Yes, yeah, I misspoke. Yeah. yeah, he did. Yeah, um, but yeah, he's he's the one who implemented it here, and he, um, it's it's become almost a flagship. You guys partnered with Wash County Health. The services, yeah, Washoe yeah. County Human Health Sur- District, Health District. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, not Human Services Agency. Um, to promote this thing, uh, I'll shut up and stop talking about it because you know more than I do. Sure. So we'll just give yeah. the basic intro, and then Patrick can talk a little bit more about how we integrate behavioral health as one of the core pieces of the five two one zero model. So five two one zero is really simple messaging. It is targeted towards kids, <laughs> but can be adopted by anybody in the family, and it stands for five or more fruits and veggies a day two hours or less of recreational screen time a day, one hour or more of physical activity a day, and zero sugary drinks, more water. So it's basically Drinking some... a diet, Dr. Pepper, by the way. There's no sugar. Hey, you know this. what? No sugar. Yes. It's virtually... It's almost water. Step in the right direction. We can talk. <laughs> yeah. So um, basically this model was um, based off of the 5210 model out of um, Portland, Maine. And they were able to see, again, you know, we were talking about short-term versus long-term results... They have been able to implement the 5210 program for long enough that they're starting to see these, you know, plateaus or even reversals in their obesity epidemic out east. So Dr. Shane adopted this model and brought it to Community Health Alliance. And so it started off as our healthy weight program. And what that is, is we're seeing a bunch of kiddos coming through our doors that are um, either already obese, they have BMIs that have them to be, you know, pre-qualifiers for um, fatty liver disease, they're coming in with pre-diabetes and all sorts of other health issues. Children. Children, kids, very young kids, kids as young as, you know, seven, eight. I'm sure, you know, Dr. Shane could tell you stories about our youngest patients coming in and we're seeing these issues. And a lot of it, um, you know, there's a lot of different factors that come into it, right? But a lot of it we realize is that, you know, these families don't have the um, basic education mm. of nutrition. And so it's like, what does it look like to bring in all these different services that CHA has. Like we, we have nutritionists on staff. We have pediatricians on staff. We have behavioral health professionals, psychiatrists, LCSWs, all these folks on staff. What does it look like to bring these families in, kind of have a family, a family talk together um, about what it looks like to have these healthy lifestyle habits, change these habits, you know, cause some families will have conversations in there and some families just are, you know, have some false information, right? Like just because you eat, um, 10 cookies and they're gluten-free doesn't mean that those 10 cookies don't still have right. a ton of sugar in them. And, you know, how, what does it look like to read a nutrition label? And these simple things, but also tying in, you know, what does it look like to do physical activity? You don't need a gym membership um, mm-hmm. to be healthy and fit. These are things you can fit into every day. And then, you know, but also at the same time, what is emotional eating? What does that look like? What is, you know, and what does it look like for both the parents and the children to be involved? So it's a really um, great program. We've had a lot of kids go through it. Um, we've had over 100 folks involved in the program over the past two years. And then that's what grew into 5210 Healthy Washoe, which is a community-wide initiative taking the 5210 message out to the greater community. 
buy fruit and vegetables, two hours or fewer of screen time, mm -hmm. uh, leisure, leisurely screen time, yes. one hour of exercise mm -hmm. per day, and zero sugary drinks, and an increased water. Mm -hmm. and that's, it, in my brain, it sounds disgusting because I hate water. Um, I pound my water because I know I need <laughs> hydration. Uh, so I just, like, every hour I'll, drink, I'll just pound some water, half a glass or something, and that seems to be fine. Um, sugary drinks are not tempting. Uh, I do my hour a day, typically. Uh, I get up and walk. Uh, the two hours of screen time is uh, not an option because I have two children. Um, five fruits and veggies I need to work on. Absolutely. And one of the cool things, <laughs> we all do, right? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. Um, I, might I, get a, I might get a tangerine yeah. if I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I like to joke that my um, my overall health greatly increased after starting work at CHA because when you're surrounded by all these nutritious all the time, you're like, oh, donut or apple? <laughs> hmm. Like, I actually know all the benefits. Maybe. Just so, sensing the yeah. judgmental eyes from, from across the hall. Not even that. Yeah. You just know better. You just you just know too much. Yeah. You're like, I know how this That's is going to metabolize yeah. and turn into fatty liver disease. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. And, and not for nothing. I mean, that that's a really good point you bring up is just having the knowledge makes it really hard to engage in the old behaviors. And that's really how a lot of counseling works is you just introduce new information. Psychoeducation is a, is a great tool for teaching people things that they didn't know. And there's an old saying that says, once you become aware, you can no longer become unaware. So mm -hmm. then it becomes a willful choice to engage in the old patterns. Right. Well, but also with our 5 to 1 with our healthy weight program, something we see is a lot of families, they don't necessarily know all the access they have to fresh fruits and veggies. So we actually partner with the food it bank. It sounds expensive. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions in our community is that eating healthy is too expensive. So what we do is we actually bring in WIC approved foods a lot that... You know, folks can get for free um, if they're part of our WIC program and have younger kiddos. Define WIC for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. WIC stands for Women, Infants, and Children. So um, if you are under a certain income bracket and you have young children, you qualify for WIC. And WIC can give you everything from nutrition education, lactation counseling, and access to free nutritious foods. So we use a lot of those foods, but also we partner with the Food Bank of Northern Nevada, and they bring in fresh fruits and veggies every single week. And so we're able to hand out recipe cards in English and Spanish alongside these fresh fruits and veggies to really get families to experiment because we see a lot of kiddos that will come in thinking they don't like fruits and veggies, but it's because they haven't tried a lot of these different kinds. And we also have an in-house food pantry where we're able to provide a lot of those services. So not just in our healthy weight program, but to all of our patients who are screened for food insecurity. I love that it, that the provision of the the amenities, that the you know, the, uh, the the food and the and, and all that, if you will, the recipes comes with the inherent education piece that says you, you can make this sustainable on your own. It's not just a it's not a stopgap. It's not a safety net. It's a it's a it's a springboard into long term personal sustainability as a family it's not it's not creating a dependence mm -hmm. well and the other thing we like to do is we like to work with the systems they're in right mm -hmm. um a lot of our families we're not going to be giving them a grocery list they can pop on over to whole foods and spend you know hundreds of dollars making sure they have just the right you know strain of kale <laughs> right but what we have There's is strains of kale <laughs> there are several yeah. different kinds of kale yeah there you go. Increasing your education on uh, yeah. nutrition. I, I think that the, the, the part that I try to do, is, you know, a part of it is that I want to get the message out that eating healthy is expensive. Um, for many of our patients and for many of our listeners, if what I do is I put food on a scale of, of 1 to 10. And to eat at the level of 10, that's expensive, right? That is your complete organic 
There's no pesticides. There's no preservatives. There's Professional no additives. It's and, the, yeah. right, exactly. Sure. You can you can. What we want is, and this is what I tell my patients is, just stop eating in the bottom twenty five percent of that food chain. Mm-hmm. Right. You can eat in the middle at almost the same cost. The issue that we run into when we deal with a lot of the, our population are these food deserts, right? And, and in, a food, in a food desert, is there is no place to purchase or to access healthy food within a particular distance of your home. So that would be like our rural communities? Not like even. No, here in Reno, we have food deserts. Right? So, oh. yeah, because a lot of our patients don't have access to transportation. So if that grocery store is further away, that literally becomes inaccessible. To that them. makes sense, yeah. And I'm thinking like our North Valleys probably would be a good example. It's it's easier to go to the 7-Eleven or the convenience sure. store and to buy your pre-made meals Takis, Funyuns, yeah. Exactly. Um, than it is. Then Otherwise, you have to spend how many hours trying to get to a grocery store. Right. And then you can only get so many because you got to ride a bus to get home. Right. And that's a bit of an issue. If there's a bus available. If there's a bus available. Yeah. So, and they only run at certain times. So, anyways, so the, so the food desert is actually, and, and that's a real problem in almost most urban communities. That's a neat, con- I mean, it's not a neat concept. It's an interesting one I'd never heard before, food yeah. desert. Yeah. It's, I mean, you think about it. If, if you and I said, hey, you know, let's let's get into the, into the grocery business and we would do our research on it, we'd say, well, what's where's our best bang for the buck? We're going to go into the higher income neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Where there's less crime, there's less loss, mm-hmm. rather than going into some of the lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. Right. right? And it's just this, this self-prospering just keeps going and going. So You just triggered something in my head that, I mean, in Nevada particularly, and, and Vegas, I can't even imagine how Clark County is. There's so much sprawl that distance is covered. Is, I mean, maybe not in, say, in New York City, where several blocks take you through many mm-hmm. countries and cultures and opportunities. But... Um, but here, I mean, you got to go forever. I, I'm just thinking back to my old home out in Spanish Springs where we were about a mile and a half from the grocery store because that's just what the neighborhood was. And, but if you don't, it's the assumption is you have a car yeah, and you have fuel for the car and gas for the fuel. I did, uh, money for the fuel. I, I reviewed some, did some of the kind of the geo mapping pieces and I started to look at, um, in, in our community where the highest levels of chronic disease were. I looked at the lower, the lowest of the socioeconomic, and then I looked at where the food resources were, and they, the overlap on it was almost identical. Hmm. Right. So, the chances of if you're low socioeconomic, you're not going to have the food and, and nutritional resources, and you're going to have a higher level of chronic disease, and less motivation to go seek them out simply due to other lack of resources like childcare to watch your kids for the three hours it takes you to go to the store. Correct. Wow. Now. Jake, we look at that on the healthcare side, and that's why we have six health centers within the community, right? Where many mm-hmm. people will say, oh, we're going to have one big, large health center, mm-hmm. right? We go to the neighborhoods. We want to be able to remove that transportation barrier as, as much as that we possibly can. Yeah. So we have smaller health centers uh, within the neighborhoods, and I think that's, that's an important piece. So... You know, and I, and I wanted to touch real quick. I know we started off on the 5210, and there's one other piece. And, of course, being on the behavioral health side, the, the part of that we're looking at, as Afton is pointing out, there's all these medical pieces that we want to look at. But I look at the social piece, and I look at um, kids that have low self-esteem. Typically, we're going to see them as being a little bit more overweight. We know that as people age, that people that have more sedentary lifestyles and they have poor nutrition and that they are struggling with weight – 
typically ends up with in diabetes, they also suffer more from depression. Those are they're directly correlated and they're directly linked. We look at kids that may be over, uh, overweight at are, uh, get bullied more mm-hmm. often than other kids. And so when we talk about the behavioral health side, it's not just how do we make these proper habits and these choices. It's also like we're dealing with the fallout of, of some of these choices and, and, and where they're at. Working with the parents, um, I think, is a big one where they say, well, the kid just eats whatever he wants to eat, mm-hmm. and I can't control that. And I have to then call that parent out and say, oh, gee, so you just let your kids stay out all night? Do you let them drink right. alcohol? Do you, right. Are they allowed to smoke cigarettes? Do they get to hang out with the kid that just got out of jail, yeah, too? sometimes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you know, so if you're telling me that you don't have control over the food that they eat, what you're saying is that you're not willing to make the change yourself because as mom and dad eat, typically a child eats. And, and so that's the part of the intervention, too, and, some pe- and really kind of making people face some of the reality as a parent of what their role is in their kid because too many times I hear it's like, well, I can't control what they eat. Well, you can control what they eat. You just choose to not do it because that means you have to change as well. Well, it's hard, and change is hard, but especially personal change to model it. There's an old story about a woman who takes her diabetic son to Gandhi because uh, the kid follows Gandhi, and he really likes what he has to say. And uh, But the kid's diabetic, and he refuses to quit eating sugar. He just keeps eating sugar, and she, she mom knows he's, he's headed for death. And so she you know, saves a bunch of money, borrows money, gets on a plane, flies to see to see Gandhi brings her kid in front of him and says uh you know Mr. Gandhi please tell my son to stop eating sugar and he says come back in three days and so they said okay three days pass he comes back and she brings his son back and, he, and Gandhi says stop eating sugar and mom goes uh okay but what was with the three days he says because three days ago I stopped eating sugar <laughs> in other words, he wasn't able to command somebody else to do it. He wasn't himself willing to do. And that's uh, a tough conversation that clinicians have with parents about if you, you know, if you expect your kid to do something, you better be able to model it for them so they can see it walked out. And sometimes that struggle is very real. And if I can sprinkle in a little clinical lingo here for the listening audience, this isn't just a good idea that comes from nowhere. There's there's a systemic theory behind it. And what you're asking is, um, you know, a, what's called a first order change in your child. The second order change, which is which arises from the first order changes, is systemic. And the first order change may be to, you know, stop eating poorly. But the second order change is overall family health increases. And in order to get a second order change, typically more parts of the system than just one need to uh, make that change possible because they all need to help each other sustain it. Uh, so it's not just a good idea. It actually is well-researched and rooted in some philosophy and, and theory. There's, I mean, and, and you're exactly right. If you look at somebody who, who battles uh, drug and alcohol addiction, mm-hmm. uh, and, if you, and if you look in the rearview mirror of their, of their family, it's probably most likely that there's been people in their family that have also struggled with it. Oh, absolutely. You know, so we can apply that to the health piece, yep. and to the diet, and to the exercise, and, and these other pieces is that we set that tempo. We, you know, I typically say that we don't do anything that we're not taught, shown, or modeled. And 
Um, this gets a, it touches a little bit into the you know uh, nature versus nurture, but it, p- plainly speaking, in the behavioral health profession, um, we we don't really believe that anything is genetic. If you're if you're genetic, you can be genetically predisposed to certain tendencies based on certain factors, but. To say that all my behaviors are genetic and I simply cannot control them would mean that our profession would cease to exist because no one could change. Uh, you can't think yourself out of eye color. That's that's a genetic <laughs> component. Uh, you know, earlobes is something you can't do. You know, change through talk therapy. So if you say, well, you know, I was just born this way. Uh, well, <laughs> there's the door. <laughs> like, right, I, I yeah. can't help you right. if you're resigning yourself to that line of thinking. So if we think back, like you said, in the rearview mirror, you look back and. People who are struggling with something that's uh, not benefiting them, I want to avoid judgmental language like, you know, not good, but if, if it's not getting them where they want, um, chances are really good they were shown how to do that somewhere along the way. And, the, and there's no reason to blame. You know, people like to blame parents, say, well, that's the parents' fault. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what do you want to do now? Who cares how it, how it came about? It's nice to know that. Uh, so that we can have some perspective on it. But really, what matters is that fundamentally people can choose their own outcomes based on a series of alterations in their own patterns of, mm-hmm. of behavior and thinking and emotional response and so forth. So it actually, that taking that framework inspires hope. It, 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 it gives a lot of, um, a lot of potential to, to people to maybe break out of those family systemic patterns, those generational uh, predict, predictable uh, outcomes and say, no, f- Right now, it stops. It stops right here with this generation, and and I'm going to do something about it based on new information as introduced to me by Community Health Alliance and its. You know, physicians. Jake, if you, if you ever you know wanted a, another career or anything, I'd, I'd love to have you come over to the CHA because you just worded that really perfectly, right? And it, and it's about looking forward, right? Mm-hmm. We can we can diagnose backwards all day long. <clears throat> sure, it's where where are we going and. And I think I have these conversations when we say we can admit that change is hard, but as long as we keep saying that change is hard, it's going to be hard. Yeah. And so we say change is possible. Yep. And and so when we're really looking at people saying, look, you you just got diagnosed with diabetes, and and we're going to be able to figure out how you're going to get over this type of lifestyle that you've got that's been contributing to your diabetes. You know, and that's what it's all about. Smoking, huge one. Mm-hmm. You know, you ask anybody. Anybody, but most people that you ask when you say, "Well, why do you smoke?" and you say, "Well, it's stress." Yeah, right. Yep. So my job then is to and say, "That's well, whether it's cigarettes or marijuana." It, it doesn't matter, right? And so my job is to is to do harm reduction and to get them to start to reduce the amount that they smoke. And one of the things I say, "Well, how do you measure stress?" And they right. they, shrug, they, shrug, yeah. they, they they shrug yeah. their shoulders. and said, "We measure it by blood pressure." What do you think happens when you take a drag off of a cigarette? Yeah. Right, <laughs> yeah. your blood pressure goes up. So. Again, I'm kind of confronting their rationalization of the irrational, mm-hmm. right? And it's a sabotage. And so we're kind of we're starting to address those things and saying, you're stopping smoking. At least your harm reduction in it is possible. Right. And, and, the, and the cool thing is the body, the body heals, right? So even, even the, the, the worst case scenarios that walk through the door that, you know, they say, I've been doing this for 30 years. You know, I've been addicted to methamphetamine for, you know, 25 years or whatever. Um, we now have new, it's not even new anymore. It's, it's almost a decade old. Emerging research is about 
uh, neuroplasticity and how the brain can regrow itself. We, we used to think that wasn't possible, that nerves could regrow, and it turns out they can. They grow in a different direction, which means you have to you know, reformulate the way you think. And, and to liken it to a, a, a metaphor, because I'm a metaphor analogy guy, if you're, if you're going down a hill and on a you know on a sled and you eventually develop a rut and you lose the ability to to navigate out of that rut well that's what the brain does when it develops these patterns and we get entrenched in our patterns such that they become comfortable and then it almost perceivably seems like we can never get out of them well it turns out that's not true and ceasing smoking uh, stopping intake of fatty and greasy foods, um, high-calorie drinks, um, stopping the drugs are the first steps to, and even just slowing it down, are the first steps to regrowing some of that stuff such that you know the, the, the neurons and the synapses can, can reconnect. We can start refiring electricity through the brain in the way that we want to, and that's where behavior change comes in. You, you start making different choices. So, so hope, hope is, exists. It's really cool to, to talk about this stuff. Um, and we could talk about it forever. Well, I'll just, I'm, I'm just going to add to that. And, and I said earlier that, you know, my number one, quote, unquote, intervention is telling people to, you know, go for a 30-minute walk a day type of yeah. thing. And it's for that very reason. It's that neurogenesis. You mean of, I can sit on the couch for 23, 23 and a half hours? hours, right, as long as you get up and move for, you know, for 30 minutes. Um, but it is that, that exercise is part of that neurogenesis that happens in, in the brain. And the part that I come along with that is say immediately after you get done exercising, what I want you to do is to read, watch, listen to something that you find inspirational, motivational, mm -hmm. funny, humorous, whatever, because that's that neuroplasticity piece in which we know that our brain is not as hardwired as we really thought it was. And I asked, interestingly enough, I asked every one of our medical providers, if you could write one prescription, and one prescription only, and it, wasn't, it doesn't even have to be a medication, what would it be? And every single one of them said exercise. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, it's the key to improved health. It is the key to improved mood and, uh, and to reduced anxiety. It's, it's, um, it's really important. As I'm rubbing my surgically repaired knee now, which is quite sore from my own exercise, I'm yes-butting in my own head. And a lot of people, I think, yes-butt the exercise for a variety of reasons. I don't have the time, which we just debunked. Um, I, it's more like can't find the time or choose not to find the time uh, I'm hurt or every time I do it it hurts <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, my, my lungs won't take it uh, or my favorite that's kind of uh, analogous to going to church I have to clean myself up before I come to God it's like <laughs> no, no you you start at the gym or you start walking and then you clean up right. um, but uh, to those people it's it seems insurmountable and and to those people I would say you feel better after you you exercise you feel better just getting up and moving being in the sunshine around other people i mean that's that's the prescription to fight depression is you know depression typically wants you to be uh, alone in the dark and uh very still and so the the, the counter to that is uh, get moving around people in some sunshine and then after that your your prescription to read something inspirational is much more likely to happen because you already feel good <laughs> like right yeah yeah let's keep this going i'm gonna pick up a a, a journal or something mm -hmm. noggin notes for example <laughs> Nice plug. Right, there you go. Um, well, and a lot of people, exactly, it's like one of those things where people think like, oh, well, if I'm going to exercise, I should be able to run five miles mm -hmm. and then go lift a bunch of heavy weights. And yeah, of course it's going to hurt because your body's not used <laughs> to that. So it's like, you know, knowing the resources, knowing those proper techniques, talking to your primary care provider about your knee that's hurting or whatever that looks like to see if there actually is an issue. But really it's about small steps, right? It's, it's small steps in everyday life. It's taking an extra lap around the block or, you know, taking your lunch break and taking 10 minutes. You can do 
three 10 minute increments out of your day and boom, there's your 30 minutes. So it's really about reframing what people think of when they think of like you know, exercise, exercising. Yeah. Exactly. You don't have to be a triathlete to get the exercise that you need to have better mental health, better yeah. physical health, and better overall health. 5 a.m. Jane Fonda workouts. I always tell people, you don't have to do that. You don't have to be a 5 a.m. Jane Fonda workout. Just go for it. You're dating work. yourself, right. Patrick. <laughs> Some okay. people will relate. I'm telling you that right You're now. right. You're right, though. And and, and I think that's, a, that's a, a really well-made point is that and I don't want to go into the social media rabbit hole because we could spend forever there. But the idea is that, like, sometimes we're scrolling through our our news feeds, whether they be Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or Twitter, and you see people talking about their workouts. You know, there's there's these crazy CrossFitters that um, go out there and like you're doing push-ups and posting it online, and you know they're all shredded and 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 so you say exercise, and immediately I just want to like turn up turn off the, the, the podcast and like, I know what exercise looks like. It looks like that guy I'll never be. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. You don't have to be that. It looks like a thousand burpees within yeah, a half no, hour. Absolutely no, absolutely not. No, it's, it's, it's yeah. literally walking around the block. It's walking around the block and not even walking around the block till your feet hurt. Just do it once. That's a good start. And then maybe a week later, it's two blocks. You know, I, uh, Jake, I used to have a, a private practice and um, rather than people Meeting me in my office, sitting on the couch, staring at this ugly mug, we'd go for a hike. And I'd meet him at you trail You do have heads. a good face for radio. Right. <laughs> Perfect, isn't it? But we would, we would yeah. meet. And so the, the act of walking, uh, metaphorically, is that you're moving towards something anyway. Yeah. Right? And so you have a destination in mind. And so that we can relate that into the therapeutic piece. And then you have the, the, the ecotherapy piece as well, where you're getting in touch with all five of your senses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while walking through the woods. and But but the act of movements, and anybody that's ever gone, done the exercise that's not over-intense always said, I have better problem-solving, I'm more creative, I have better vision in the world, right? I just feel happier. Yeah. There's the reality. People people were, are coming to us in the mental health world to, to solve issues, so let's do the best that we can. And I so I, I put it, what I practice, you know, what I preach, I put it into practice and said, meet me here and let's walk. And if you're a clinician listening to this, because I know we have some clinicians in the audience, and you don't do this walk and talk therapy thing, you really need to think about it because um, something else that happens when you're walking with your client is you're 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 making the interaction much less intense because you're side by side rather than doing the staring into each other's eyes thing that can be intimidating and can be a little faulty and. Um, it's just more free for people to talk. The same thing happens when you're sitting in a car in the front seat staring out the windshield at a, on a road trip. Uh, conversation just flows because it's much less intense and less intimate while at the same time being quite uh, vulnerable. So real transformation can happen. So if you're a clinician thinking about this, you know, I, I encourage you to get out of your office too and then and model that exercise you want to see by doing it with your clients. It's really great. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, we're we're going to take a quick break. We haven't talked about core health yet and the idea behind that. We'll come back and we'll conclude the program with that. Uh, you're listening to Noggin Notes. Okay, we're back for the last segment. Um, we left off talking about uh, like core core health model and, and it's, it's really your values and we've been talking about them the whole time and I wanted to give an opportunity to encapsulate it, if you will. Uh, the conversation, you know, wandered a little bit, but in a nutshell, what's what's Community Health Alliance about, and why why should people care? I guess, and and what is patient centered healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned this before, but our main mission is to provide quality, affordable, comprehensive health services to all, and that looks like a lot of different things. But we are also have several of our sites that are certified 
patient-centered medical homes. And this is the model that we have all of our health centers based off of. And what it means is, is it's what we've already been talking about. It's that integrated level of care that really revolves around the patient, right? So when you walk into our Wells Avenue Health Center, not only can you and all your family members get the services, but after your doctor's appointment, then you go to your behavioral health appointment. After your behavioral health appointment, you're able to go to our in-house pharmacy, get mm-hmm. your prescription filled. And then you can swing by the pantry on your way out as well to get all those you know, healthy foods since we screened you and you were found to be food insecure. So really, it's and it's all of the folks talking to each other, right? It's our behavioral health providers talking with our medical providers, talking with our dental providers, talking with our pharmacists and things like that. It really eliminates a lot of gaps in care. And it just makes higher quality care because you're not getting written prescriptions for something in the medical realm that would kind of counteract with something you're doing with the behavioral health realm. It's really just making sure that, you know, everybody's on the same track as far as your providers talking with each other. And so they talk together as teams. And we have a really cool, very high integrated team um, at one of our health centers called our Center for Complex Care that Patrick can Bef- talk a little bit more about. W- one second before we do- yeah. dip into the triple C. Uh, this, something that popped out to me is... Um, you say patient-centered, and, and if I'm being, you know, uh, cynical in the audience, I go, well, what what else would it be other than patient-centered? Um, explain that. Why is this unique? Because it is. It, it surely is, but uh, don't call me Shirley. Um, but <laughs> why, why patient-centered? How is, how is it different from what was uh, so there's know, actually doctor-centered? Like, or? <laughs> right, 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 right. So there, if, when, you, when you say you are a patient-centered medical home, yes, obviously that's the ideal for everybody. But there's actually literal measurable... Um, standards that we have to measure up to in order to call ourselves a patient-centered medical home. So these are different things like making sure patients have access to all of the information they have. And But a lot of it is, you know, where do we find gaps in care? It's when you're going to your doctor over here who writes you a prescription, but then you're going to your behavioral health specialist who's, you know, prescribing something over here. Yep. And then you're running down to the food bank that's miles away and trying to get services. So patient-centered what that really means is, you know, we go above and beyond um, to make sure that these services are available for our patient and that, you know, these, these this whole team, it's not just one healthcare provider caring for this patient and then they exit our doors and go three doors down to get whatever next services. It's really trying to bring as many of those services around the patient and those, you know, clinicians and everybody talking to each other around the patient, making mm-hmm. sure that everybody's on the same page with under one roof, which is a very unique model. That is uh, unique, and it's really beneficial because as I, I as a behavioral health provider, um, always asking for what medications are you on. And sometimes people will know them very well, and sometimes they don't. And sometimes you deal with kids in foster care whose uh, medical histories are spotty. And when you have multiple providers, especially prescribers, giving medications, uh, some of them can be contraindicated some of them can have very poor effects if if they're not aware of what each other is doing and as much as we'd like to think we talk about that among ourselves we simply don't and it's and that's not to be overlooked what you guys are doing is really cool and it it blends into the center for complex care which patrick is about to talk uh, to us about and but in the meantime i want to give a brief plug for a previous podcast where we talked about the connection between dental health or oral health and mental health um, because it's just listen to the podcast. I interviewed a, a, a dentist, a friend of mine, and it was very illuminating in so far as where, where things happen in your body and what, what occurs in the mind because of it. So Patrick, talk about the center for complex care. So the center for complex care is one of our six health centers that we have, and it's actually located right next to our, uh, our main health center, uh, which is our Wells Avenue health center. 
And it is a referral-only system, and it's not a referral from outside. It's an internal referral system. And so if one of our medical providers at one of our, one of our health centers has a patient that um, they're really struggling to improve their health, and, I'll, and, and diabetes is kind of one of the, the big main uh, issues that we're always dealing with, and their A1C numbers are just not getting better. They're, they're not responding to the treatment as usual. Um, and they may have uh, comorbid conditions. So they might have some mental health conditions as well or some substance use conditions that are happening along with the diabetes or the hypertension or whatever the case may be. Um, we invite them to, uh, to get their care over at the Center for Complex Care. The difference is at the Center for Complex Care that you can find at any of the other health centers is that we literally work in a team. So where we have behavioral health and we have medical and what all our health centers, this is there is a care coordinator, a behavioral health provider, and a medical provider, and they all share one office. A part of that team is also going to be the medical assistant. Um, we will have maybe a psychiatric nurse practitioner that is going in and out of there, and we have clinical pharmacy. And every single morning we go over the, over the schedule of who's coming in on that day for that particular team. And we review their charts and we go say, here's what needs to happen with them today. Here's what's going on. And everybody has input into uh, their care on that day. And when the patient comes in, we may meet with them as a team. And so the patient gets assigned to a team. They don't get assigned to you know, Dr. Johnson. They're mm -hmm. getting assigned to the team. We move their appointment scheduled times out uh, by about 10 minutes. Normally, most people get your 20 minutes if you get that, but on paper, you get a 20-minute booked appointment. We book them out to 30 minutes. And uh, so you're going to get more time with them uh, because their needs are much, much higher. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a team-based system, and that is the true integrated model. It, it, it's, I've seen it. I play dumb sometimes in these interviews to provide a better experience for the audience. But uh, you've given me a tour of that, and it's, um, it is remarkable. And it's really, it really should be held up as the ideal for the way all healthcare operates. So these happen to be, the, the patients in the, in the CCC happen to be of higher level need and intervention. But it's completely reasonable in the future, and I'm thinking however many years in the future we go, that a person who's a well person stops in and gets the same exact treatment. And wouldn't it be nice if we could get insurance or state funding to cover that kind of thing so that we avoid ER, so that we avoid um, you know, acute care visits, and we can empower them with information like how to keep yourself healthy through uh, you know, dietary uh, maintenance and um, good family functioning and good strong roles and boundaries within the family system, as well as continued maintenance of your health through regular primary dental and optical checkups and that kind of thing. So um, it really is very cool. Um, we're, we're getting into the end of things, and I want to wrap up and thank you both for, for being a part of this. It's been, it's been really cool. I hope the, the listening audience learned something. That's our goal you know, the whole time. So um, if you're out there, uh, wherever you're listening, and you, you found something like this um, interesting, you can contact uh, Community Health Alliance at chanevada.org. Uh, you can email us, and I'll get you in contact with them, info at zephyrwellness.org or info at naganotes.com. 
Um, this stuff is possible. It's possible in your community. It's being done in our community. We're not a small community. I mean, there's, you know, four or five hundred thousand people in the greater Truckee Meadows area, depending on how far you draw the, the radius. But um, right here in Reno and Sparks, we got, you know, we're pushing four hundred thousand people. And it's and it's what you guys are doing. I think 30,000 unduplicated clients is not something to sneeze at. Um, so it's possible. And when it's possible somewhere, it's possible anywhere. And as I like to say, uh, you know, I may have stolen this from my friend and mentor, Christian Conti, but um, humans have great potential. And if you're a human being, you have the same potential as any other human being because human beings having their human nature uh, such that we all walk together, if one person has done it, it is therefore human nature, meaning that if you are a human, you possess that same nature. So if it can be done here, it can be done anywhere. And we would love to see more comprehensive health care all over the place. So uh, Patrick, Afton, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. You guys have a great uh, evening. It's evening now. And uh, on behalf of the Naga Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, thanks for listening to the podcast. Catch you next week. Mm-hmm.